Do you wait well? Are you good at waiting? I think that most of us would probably answer that same way, wouldn't we? We would say, no, we are not good at waiting. In fact, there are certain places, dreadful places, that have these things called waiting rooms, where all you do is sit down and do nothing but wait, like at the dentist or at the doctor. And depending on what is going on in our lives, the waiting can really be easier or harder, can't it? It's not easy to wait in the hospital waiting for a loved one to get out of surgery. It's not easy to wait on that check that you're hoping for to help you make ends meet. It's not easy to wait for that work that you're hoping comes in to help you again to make ends meet. It's not easy to wait for God to maybe save that unsaved family member. But then there are other things that we say that we can't wait for, right? I can't wait for this to happen. I can't wait to grow up. I can't wait to go to college. I can't wait to get married, right? Right now, Christmas is, well, soon going to be in the air, isn't it? And the kids can't wait for Christmas. We can't wait to go hunting. We can't wait to see if the Red Sox are going to win the World Series this year. But let me ask you this. In regard to waiting for the second coming of Jesus... Is it easy for you to wait for Jesus' coming? Or is it hard for you to wait for Jesus' coming? Is the coming of the Lord something that encourages you when you think about it, that you cannot wait for it to happen? Or is the coming of the Lord something that you actually rather not think about? Something that would maybe even be an inconvenience to your retirement plans if you were to come back today. Something that might be an inconvenience to the career that you want to build, or the children that you want to have, or the marriage that you want to have. Last week we looked at the oppression that these brothers and sisters, and James, that he's writing to, the oppression that they were experiencing from the hands of the wealthy. And it's obvious from the very beginning of the book of James, which we saw in verses 2 to 4, that these brothers and sisters were experiencing a severe persecution, a a special sort of trial that was hard for them to endure. Do you remember the famous words that James really begins this whole epistle with? He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith, it produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So these brothers and sisters that he's originally writing to, they are under the gun, aren't they? That they're going through extreme trial. The theme pops up of trial and oppression several times throughout this book. That their faith was being tested. Steadfastness was having to be built up with them in order to sanctify them, to help them as they were waiting for the Lord's return. And so while they're waiting for the Lord's return, it is in this context of oppression. It's in the context of persecution. I mean, waiting well and being patient for anything while you're uncomfortable in any way is a hard thing, isn't it? Like discomfort makes waiting that much harder. I mean, being a patient in a waiting room while you're in pain is very much different than waiting in a waiting room when you're not in pain, isn't it? Waiting for a drink of water after you've had an extremely hard workout can be hard to wait in line for the bubbler or the water fountain. Or waiting an extra long time at the restaurant can be hard when you're hungry. But if you're not that hungry, it's not that big of a deal. So whether major or minor, any kind of waiting is difficult and it's increased when we're uncomfortable. And these brothers and sisters were facing such apparent trial and persecution. And James has to admonish them because of their discomfort in life 
Be patient. Wait well. And I have a fear, like I mentioned to you last week, that we're going to have a hard time relating to these first century brothers and sisters in this text of Scripture. Because although they waited for the Lord in a context of oppression, we await for the Lord in a context of ease, don't we? To the point where if we're honest, we would have to admit that there are actually times that we hope the Lord doesn't come back in our lifetime. Where we hope that we can get our 85 years in. You see, we don't need to be encouraged to be patient for the Lord's return. We actually need to be pushed and prodded to be impatient for the Lord to return. Because more often than not, we are plenty patient enough. To give you an example, I remember a Bible teacher that I had in the ninth grade. I went to a Christian school, uh, K-12, through and this was around ninth grade, and he was convinced that the Lord was going to come back really soon. And so here we are in ninth grade, what, 15 years old or whatever, and he told us, he said... You're probably not going to get married because the Lord's going to come back. You're, you're probably not going to have the chance to have children. And I remember being in 8th grade thinking to myself, man, I want to have kids. Right? I, I want to experience all that life has to offer me. I was plenty patient for the Lord to return. But that's not the attitude of our first century brothers and sisters. It's apparent that they couldn't wait for the Lord to return. That they thirsted and desired and even longed for the return of Christ. You only have to encourage someone to be patient when they're struggling with impatience. And these brothers, with this persecution swirling around them, were pushed further, further down that road of, Lord, come, Lord, come, Lord, come. And so James has to step in and say, brothers and sisters, wait well, be patient. My sermon this morning is titled just that, Waiting Well for Jesus. And if you look on the back of your bulletin, I have three major points drawn from this text. And they fit together with really the three main imperatives that James gives us. First, be patient. Jesus is coming. Second, establish your hearts. Jesus is at hand. And third, do not grumble. Jesus is at the door. First, look again with me at James chapter 5, beginning of verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So beginning with our first point here, be patient, Jesus is coming. And this word for patient really carries the idea of being long-suffering, which certainly these brothers and sisters, they were long-suffering, weren't they? They were suffering long under duress. And like any command in the Bible, when you see an imperative where it tells us to do something, we have to understand that underlying it is the fact that you and I are not able to obey this command on our own. You and I are not able to execute perfect patience in our lives in and of our own strength, can we? We need the Holy Spirit of God to enable our obedience, don't we? And so underlying any imperative in Scripture is the grace of God and the Spirit of God that is going to enable our obedience. Specifically, think about this word patience. I mean, we know that patience is actually a fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? So Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, 
peace, patience. And so the Spirit is the one who enables the patience that James is encouraging us to. And then in his usual way, James begins using illustrations. Remember, we've talked about this several times over the course of the book of James, that he's just like his big brother Jesus, isn't he? He's just constantly using these illustrations, and he gives us three this morning in regard to uh, being patient. He tells us about farmers, prophets, and then the Old Testament character, Job. And so the first example he gives is of a farmer. Notice again in the second half of verse 7. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until, he, until it receives the early and the late rains. Uh, growing up in Rhode Island, we really didn't have much space to grow anything. The house that I grew up in was probably about from me to that sanctuary um, away. So there really wasn't much space at all to grow crops in any meaningful sense. But one of the things that I've really grown to appreciate about Maine and driving around and seeing these different farms and um, even just the corn or even down the road here where they're growing for Beth's, at least that's what the sign says, growing for Beth's. Uh, Not my wife, Beth, that's growing for some farm stand, right? So... That's over there, those beautiful sunflowers, or there's whatever else out there. And it's just really neat to drive around in a more rural area and to see the crops popping up all over the place. It's one of the things that I really appreciate about Maine. But one of the things that we don't have to deal with, that these farmers of old had to deal with, was being utterly dependent on the weather. Now, certainly farmers are now, right? To some extent, the rain is certainly very helpful. The crops um, need the rain. But whether the rain comes or not, they can often get water to their crops, can't they? Yet in the farmers of James's day really depended on these early and late rains. The rains that came in October and the rains that came in March or April. So these were the early and late rains that we're talking about. The October ones actually considered the early rains and the spring ones were the late rains. So they needed this. The farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and he is trusting that the rain is going to come. It comes every year. It needs to come. And so he prepares his field. He gets everything going. He has absolutely no power over the rains. And he trusts that they're going to come. And that trust is what pushes him to keep plowing, to keep planting, to keep weeding. The rains are going to come. And the crops will go. He w- grow. He, he waits for it to be- come from the ground. And brothers and sisters, just like the rains come for the patient farmer, and the crops grow for him, the Lord is going to come for his patient followers. The knowledge that the Lord is going to come helps us with perspective, doesn't it? Like knowing that Jesus is going to come helps us to understand many things about life. We get impatient because we get so tunnel visioned. We get earthly minded. We get focused on what's going on down here. But when you remember the fact that Jesus is coming back, like doesn't that radically change your worldview? When you're thinking about certain areas that people think about, it gives you such a perspective. So when we remember that Jesus is coming back, we get the perspective that we need not throw in the towel. Imagine a farmer who who plants and weeds and prepares his field only to throw in the towel just before October when the rains come. Even so, how much more silly is the one who is plodding away in his work for the kingdom of God and he grows disheartened, wondering if Christ is going to come. Brothers and sisters, take heart because the king, he is absolutely coming. As sure as the rains for the farmer, the Lord is going to come for us. For these brothers and sisters who were being oppressed by the rich, they had the hope and the knowledge that Christ was going to come for them. But then what about James's second illustration? Look at verse 10. 
As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So these Christians have a farmer as an example, and then they have the, the, the farmer is patient for the rains. Um, we're patient for the coming of the Lord. However, we also have the example of the prophets who did what? Well, James tells us in verse 10 that they spoke in the name of the Lord. And what an example the prophets of the Lord were of, of speaking the truth of God in the midst of their own suffering. Like, do you remember what some of these prophets went through? Even speaking and going through the camp and speaking to the people of God and the kind of turmoil that they went through at the hands of God's people. Nothing about being a prophet was easy. I mean, think about Elijah. Think about his life. Think about somebody like Isaiah, who history tells us he was sawn in half. Think about somebody like Ezekiel. Listen to these words from the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith, we call it. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of the weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy." Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. You want to be a prophet of the Lord? No. But we look to them, don't we? All that they endure. Suffering, affliction, dens of lions, being sawn in two, wearing rough sheep and goat clothes, eating food from ravens. They endured persecution. Even persecution at the hands of their own people. The deacon Stephen asked in his sermon to the religious rulers in Acts chapter 7, which of, your, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? The prophets were this persecuted lot of people. And as James is encouraging these persecuted individuals in the first century, he says, look at the ones who came before you. Look at the ones who came before and although we are not to avenge ourselves, and we were talking a little bit about that in the Christian ethics class this morning, and when we see terrible injustices that make us want to go and solve the problem in a violent manner, that is not up to us. It is up to God, isn't it? That He is the one who is going to avenge. He is the one that is going to make all things well and right in the world one day. Yet we do have the prophetic ministry in that we do what the prophets do and speaking, right? Speaking the truth of God. And so we speak God's truth into our culture. We speak God's truth into our own camp here as a church. The prophets could have potentially lived an easy life if they didn't follow God's call, if they didn't say the things that God wanted them to say. Although Jonah found out the hard way that disregarding God's call was a bad idea. But most of them didn't. And even for most of them, living lives, living lives speaking the truth of God to the people of God got them into a ton of hot water. The situation of John the Baptist speaking out against sexual sin and he lost his head eventually because of it. They were persecuted in the midst of their truth-telling concerning the things of God. And so might we. 
we too may carry the experience of persecution for the things that we say or the things that we do. But the fact is that we have a great cloud of prophetic witnesses, don't we? That have gone before us as an example to whom we look when we are experiencing persecution. So we should have the patience of a prophet. If you are suffering at the hands of the unjust for Jesus' sake, do not be discouraged. Take heart in the example of the prophets who suffered yet had patience in their God. But the third example, the example of Job. Look at verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. It's common even uh, outside of the church to hear somebody say, uh, oh, this person has the patience of Job. Job has become legendary for his patience, even though you could probably argue at times that he wasn't so patient. But James specifically says, look to Job. He was patient. And he certainly was a man of patience. He endured more loss than any of us have. Although some of you have certainly tasted some of the loss that Job experienced with the loss of children and belongings and health. Being that person on earth that that Satan is going full bore after. This was Job. Can you imagine Satan going before God? Yeah, it's because you're not letting me get to him. And then Satan goes down to Job and he afflicts him with all sores and takes everything away from him. The only reason he was serving God was because he was being blessed. But when he was not blessed, Job still in chapters 1 and chapter 2 said, The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Or in chapter 2, he says, Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. When we read the book of Job, we know how it turns out for him, don't we? So we have that perspective. We see Job's life from the beginning of the trial before to the end. Yet what James indicates is that really ultimately isn't what matters. What matters is that Job trusted in the purpose of God when those things were happening. And despite the atrocities that Job and the prophets and these persecuted brothers and sisters faced, it can still be said by James, remarkably, can't it? The Lord is compassionate and merciful. Haven't you found in your own life when you're going through suffering and trial and difficulty that the Lord is compassionate and merciful within those times? How wonderful it is that despite the hard providences of God that He brings into our life, that there are divine purposes, isn't there? Like Some of you have been through these incredibly hard providences. I've heard many of your stories that God has brought some of you through these difficulties. This is part of why I love membership interviews. Where I get to sit with you and I get to hear your story, what God has done in your life. Some of you have been through things that the person next to you right now would have absolutely no dreams have happened to you. And yet here you are on the other side of those providences, not taking the advice of Job's wife. Remember the advice that she gives of cursing God and dying? You come to the other side of those divine providences and you see the purpose of the Lord. And you trust in that. You've tasted the sweet reality that the Lord is truly compassionate and He is merciful. And ultimately, is not Christ the greatest example that we look to of patience under suffering? And so we have the example of the farmer. We have the example of the prophets. We have the example of Job. But this all has to lead us to the example of Jesus, doesn't it? It's to this compassionate and merciful Lord that the examples of the prophets and Job ultimately point us to, isn't it? 
Certainly we look to the Old Testament saints who are good examples of patience within a trial, but they are not perfect examples, are they? Like the author of Hebrews continues on in chapter 12 of his letter, after showing us the prophets and others who suffered God in that hall of faith, those Old Testament saints who expressed great faith in God, Hebrews chapter 12 says, Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay, every si- let, lay aside every weight and the sin which doth easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, now looking unto Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith. So we look back to them. We see their example, but we look up to him, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. The example of the great cloud of witnesses that we have from God's word encourages us in our own patient race. We look to Jesus who went to the cross and suffered in our place. The ultimate patience in suffering. That he endured it. He endured the suffering. And so our passage this morning has so much to say about the coming of Jesus several times, mentioning it over and over and over again, that Jesus is going to come back and we look forward to our Lord riding on the clouds triumphantly, don't we? Like we sung this morning, when he shall come with trumpet sound, or may I then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before his throne. Like, don't you look forward to that? But before that, in his life, he endured the cross. He endured temptation. He felt real struggle. He felt real hunger, real pain. Not only was he in immense physical agony in the episode where he's being tortured, dying on the cross, having been whipped, given a crown of thorns, slapped, nail-pierced hands and feet. He also endured the immense pain of the wrath of God being poured onto Him for us. And Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for us, dry. And then He was buried. And then He rose again. And what we wait for now is this coming? Friend, have you, have you trusted in that message? When you hear about what Jesus has done, does that sound beautiful to your ears? We're all sinners in need of a Savior. And Christ is the only Savior. He's the only one through whom we can be reconciled to God. And that can only come by trusting in Jesus, trusting in what He has done on your behalf. That, that's the only way it comes. Salvation doesn't come through any other means, or man, or woman, or yourself. It comes through trusting and believing in the work of Jesus on your behalf. And so our compassionate and merciful Lord is just that. And He bids us to come to Him and to find the compassion and the mercy that we're in desperate need of. Christian, be patient. The Lord is coming. Follow these examples in as much as they exemplify Jesus to us. But second, and these points will be shorter. They didn't have three examples to go with these last points. But second, establish your hearts. Jesus is at hand. Look at verse 8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Each month on the second Saturday of every month, through, through, through the rest of this year, we have that class called Rooted, which is a Bible and theology class. I would encourage you to come. 
And we begin by doing some exegesis of the passage that we're going to be looking at the next day. So, for instance, yesterday morning, we began by looking at James chapter 5, verses 7 to 11, and asking questions of the text and everybody analyzing it for themselves. And after those um, who came went through the passage for a while, a couple of them had the question, what does it mean to establish your heart? And that was a question I had this week as I was looking at this text. What does it mean to establish your heart? The temptation, though, within a trial for our hearts is to be all over the place, isn't it? Like there might be times in your marriage, certain seasons, they always talk about the different years, right? Oh, year 15 is really hard or year 7 or whatever it is is really hard. And there comes those times in your marriage where you might have to consciously say to yourself and you're making more of that choice to love, right? You're, You're reminding yourself of that covenant. It's not like the honeymoon season anymore. It's more like, yes, I need to make the active choice every day to love my spouse, right? And you need to remind yourself, you need to establish your heart yet again in your spouse and the love that you have for your spouse, in the covenant that you made to your spouse. And so to establish our hearts is difficult because the trial is what unsettles our hearts, isn't it? It, it, it makes us wonder about Jesus. It makes us wonder if the Lord really has a plan, if we can really trust God. Like the song says, for prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Well, when we are prone to wander, when we are prone to leave the God we love, that is when we establish our hearts yet again in him. Our hearts are prone to wander from Christ, yet James commands us, establish them. Other translations say to strengthen our hearts or to stand firm. One commentator said, let your purposes and your faith be firm and unwavering. Do not become weary or fretful, but bear with constancy all that is laid upon you until the time of your deliverance shall come. The temptation under oppression or in the trial is for our hearts to be all over the place, for our faith to wane, for us to grow weak in faith and to trust in God. But James encourages us all this morning to establish our hearts. The Lord is coming. Remain true to the faith. Be patient. Keep heart. But I want you to notice our final point this morning. That as we wait well for the coming of the Lord, it's important that we actually do not grumble against one another. Look at verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. I love these two words here in this verse, one another. Because our tendency is to read the Bible with a very individualistic mindset, isn't it? Like, if we were to be under pressure, oppression, persecution, we imagine ourselves by ourselves sitting in a cell somewhere, don't we? We, we imagine being persecuted, but we imagine being all alone, experiencing the persecution by ourselves. But these brothers and sisters were experiencing persecution together. Be patient with one another. Do not complain against one another. And any time we are experiencing persecution or a time of trouble as a church, the tendency for us can be to turn on each other. And this can be illustrated very simply for any of you who have taken a trip together as a family, can't you? Like you're driving down the road, your engine's overheating, there's no food, your cell phone just just died, and you have absolutely no no idea what to do. And then what happens? You turn on each other. Suddenly your worst enemies are sitting next to you, right? Because of this small trial of breaking down, suddenly you're at each other's throats, right? And the same can be said for the Christian community. 
The persecution we experience together is hard. And so often, instead of remaining patient and with established hearts, trusting in God's promises, we begin to turn on one another. We begin to see the faults much more easily in one another and to complain and grumble about each other. And we cannot simply fly by this command here from James. I found it easy this week I was going, as I was going through this passage, just kind of buzz by this one a little more than maybe the others. Do you grumble or complain about your brothers and sisters? The effect of our grumbling and complaining goes beyond even our own context. Because plenty of churches grumble and complain, assuming that their whining doesn't extend beyond the four walls of the church building. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Yet make no mistake, our community here in Windsor and the surrounding town, if we become known as a grumbling church, that spreads. I never realized that until coming to a small town, how quickly things fly around. The town I grew up in was over 100,000 people. You could kind of hide, but not in a 2,500-person town of Windsor. And the reality is, Our grumbling is heard by plenty of people who are not part of the body of Christ. And it ruins our witness in our location. I like what Mark Dever said in one of his books. One thing that will make our witness compelling to the world around us is this. We do not complain or grumble. When we allow discontentment to result in complaining and grumbling, we damage our reputation as Christians and harm the witness of the church. We are a compelling community to the world when we do not complain or grumble against one another. When the world sees the church undergoing persecution and oppression, yet the church is not naturally turning in on each other, yet they are still maintaining their prophetic witness in the world, that displays the power of Jesus to the world around us, doesn't it? Like that displays to the world the power of living in Christian community. When you're oppressed having struggles, going through trial. And Jesus is honored. But how often is it the other way around? That really the world knows that we are a church because of the fact that we are complaining and grumbling against each other. As the persecution heats up, even so must our graciousness with one another. If you have truly understood the compassionate and merciful Lord that James has shown us in this text, and how undeserving you were to receive the compassion and mercy of Christ, how then can we be anything but compassionate and merciful with each other? Brothers and sisters, are you waiting well? Are you patient for the coming of the Lord? Is the coming of the Lord something that is even on your radar this morning? Does the fact that the Lord is going to return excite you? That you might even walk out of this building today and the Lord comes riding on the clouds on October 14th, 2018. Like what a joy that would be to leave this building after worshiping together and then see him face to face. Are you waiting well for his return? Is your heart established in the one who is returning? Is it sealed and firm in the things of Christ? And as we wait for him together, let us do so in patience with our hearts established in him. Not complaining and grumbling against one another, but encouraging one another, even as that day is drawing near. Let's pray.